Hello, and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Assad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Rabia York-Lombard, author of No True Believers, a young adult novel released in 2020. The book weaves a story of Islamophobia and white supremacy through the eyes of a relatable American teenage girl who is just trying to get through her senior year of high school. No True Believers is a deeply personal book for Rabia, and she drew a lot from her own experience as an American Muslim at home and abroad. Rabia is also an award-winning author of a number of other books, including the picture books The Conference of the Birds and The Gift of Ramadan. No True Believers is her debut novel for young adults and is being described as a, quote, page-turner that carries a message of radical love regardless of faith. Rabia, thank you for joining American Muslim Project. Hey, assalamu alaikum. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I was wondering if we could just start by maybe you can describe the book um, a little bit so our, read- our listeners uh, can get a sense of what it's like. Sure. When I describe it just like casually in a, in a single sentence, I just say, hey, this is about this girl, Salma, who has been framed for a crime that she would never commit and has to use her wits and her faith to uh, get herself out of this terrible situation and kind of save the day. That's the heart of the story. And then it also deals with Islamophobia and white supremacy, but really about family and friends and the sort of the binds that give us supports and just give her an identity that helps her navigate a difficult situation. Yeah, Salma is, it seems to be a pretty relatable character. She's very smart. She's a hacker. She loves spending time with her boyfriend. She has this chronic illness and just kind of seems like a typical suburban teenage American girl. Is is that what you were going for with this? I was. I definitely was. I wanted to make her very relatable. I don't know how many suburban kids are hackers, but that part, I mean, that's kind of like useful to the plot. It was so fun to research. And I kind of felt like a fraud because I don't, I'm not a techie person. And I was like, this is a little bit beyond me. Because <laughs> you know, you can't write about something unless you understand it. So that took some extra effort on my part. But but yeah, I think she's definitely very relatable. And I, I have her growing up in, in Northern Virginia, which is where I grew up, which is really mixed area, but still very Virginia-y. And uh, yeah, she's, it's funny because in some ways she's very much based on my eldest daughter, who's just like, just this, this smart kid that's just has a bit of an anti-authoritarian streak, which I think all nice. all teens have i think it's a really healthy attitude to have this sort of questioning you know question the world question the authorities around you um and it's kind of a waking up process for her like at first she isn't that way entirely but then she comes to realize what other people go through and and just she's in this this difficult situation so she kind of wakes up and is like what <laughs> Yeah, I was as I was reading the book, I kept on wanting Selma to go tell an adult or tell someone, you know, what was going on so she could get some help. But then I was like, you know, when I was a teen, that's not what I would have done. I would have tried to solve it myself. I think I was smarter than my parents. Is 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 that, you know, is your daughter like that? <laughs> well, thankfully, my daughter speaks is very open to me. She, I'm sure she has her secrets. Um, yeah, that was definitely something that I had to debate in my own head and thinking about myself as a teen and then thinking also kids do, they keep a lot of secrets. You know, if you're writing, oh, that's the kind of the tricky part of writing the thriller is you've got to hold back a lot of information, but at the same time, you maintain the balance, you have to make it believable. 
How did you come up with the idea for the book? And and I, I read that it took you three years to, to write it. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey? Oh, my goodness. The impetus behind the book um, was very much related to when, when we moved as a family to the Middle East. My husband's an academic, and he was going through a tenure process that was really difficult and ended up being very Islamophobic, and he was denied tenure. And we were scrambling to figure out what to do next. And the only place he could find work was in the Middle East. So we, you know, he lost his job, we sold the house. And within three months, we just jumped on a plane, grabbed the three young kids and started over, which is, which is really hard to do when you've already built yourself a life. And this, and this happened for us in 2015, right? So this is, and this is coming up to 2016. So this happened also just, you know, as Donald Trump was coming into office. And I, I was just going through a lot of emotions and part of it was like a profound awakening, you know, to what it's like to experience othering and Islamophobia on a more sort of, I don't know what the right word would be, but sort of on a more institutional level, because this was, this was coming from an academic institution for my husband and the impact was very, for us, it was very, very profound and very deep and very financial and very much about our entire lives and our children and then having to restart. Um, And I had never really experienced what that was like to go through anything that, that huge. Um, Just to give a background, I'm, you know, I'm a Caucasian uh, convert to Islam. I converted when I was 18. Um, And of course, once I started wearing hijab a little bit, I guess it was about a year after I became Muslim, 9-11 happened. And um, I was in DC at the time and I, sure you're targeted. I imagine for sure. Yeah, I was, yeah, there was just constant like heat on you, you know, people just hate, like looking at you and with these eyes that just like hated you. And that was, I, you know, I'd never experienced that. And, um, it was definitely a real eye opener, but you know, as the years passed, things kind of relaxed and, you know, developed a life and kind of got used to, to dealing with, you know, what it's like to be an American Muslim, what it's like to be hijabi. We were living in Boston and kind of in the suburbs and life was was pretty stable. And then this happened uh, to my husband and then boom, it was like all every all the all the supports, all the things I thought were real, just kind of pulled out from under my feet and we had to start over. It was incredibly painful because with my husband, he went through a process that was very institutional and he, and he fought it and, and things didn't work out. But you saw what it was like to have that pressure um, where everything is like your whole life. It's just the, the, like this, it's these structures around you are crumbling, the, the psychological pressure. And this, all these feelings really kind of made me kind of wake up to um, what it was like to, to be in a situation where things are just not in your control, that the sort of powerlessness. I had never, I guess I think I'd never really experienced what it was like to, not that I've had power in my life, but that powerlessness that that feeling that that's so just so difficult place to be in and then to be and then to start over you know you've got three kids and you're hitting the ground running you got to figure out you know schools and just everything and so i had all these emotions and all these uh sort of waking up process and the election was happening so then then it was a, it wasn't just about me but it was just like oh my god look what's happening in the country right now and sure. all the rhetoric and all the things that are way worse and i was just processing all these things and i had this you know this sort of an awakening of what it was like to to deal with these painful subjects and also to have this angst and it, and it just all got channeled into this you know t- this idea of like let's flip the narrative let's deal with 
um, what it's like to feel like you're framed for something you would never commit. Because in a way, that's what the experience of othering is. It's dealing with people who don't know anything about you um, and constantly kind of view you in a certain way. And, it, and it's really like you've been framed for something they've, they believe you've already committed. And yeah. that constant psychological pressure is really hard. That was really just kind of the all the, I guess, all the feelings that went into it. And it was sort of, so I guess it was a catharsis. So I'm, yeah, it sounds like this sounds- is a very long answer to your question, but it was an act of catharsis <laughs> of trying to understand, you know, all, all the craziness that was happening during that period. And just, um, yeah. It, it seems like it, it, it must've been hard to write at times as well, because you're dealing with all these issues. It was. So I think that explains the three years. Cause that's really, <laughs> <laughs> really awful. Um, it definitely was, uh, but it was a great experience. I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have written it had I not gone through all those things. Cause that was previously entirely a, pic- a picture book author, you know, adapting folk tales and just writing these like happy, lovely, either animal based or concept books that, you know, you read to your little kid at bedtime and just makes you feel really wonderful about the world. (laughs) Um, So switching from that to then this, you know, conspiracy thriller where it's just nonstop um, craziness was an interesting switch, um, but it came at the right time. What was it like when you pitched this to your publisher that you wanted to write a young adult novel um, at the intersection of Islamophobia and white supremacy. <laughs> I, you know what, um, my editor, my two editors I worked with, um, they were both really so incredibly supportive. And I don't think at all that it was a coincidence that they are both Jewish and that they understood um, what it was like to be sort of in the middle of two worlds, being a religious minority, but then also being part of the racial majority if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the themes in your book was, or I guess not theme, but um, Selma deals with a lot of bullying in the book. Um, what, why, why was that central? Why did you just decide to put that into the book? You know, I just felt that people should be aware that Islamophobia comes not just from, you know, these crazy, you know, racists that we like to make fun of that are, you know, have tiki tortures or wherever it is, but also just comes from these subtle um, sources all around us. And when they come, uh, you know, from the school environment, it's all the more painful because these are places where kids are supposed to feel supported, supported and, you know, nourish and just kind of grow as, as individuals. But there is unfortunately uh, subtle and pervasive forms of, um, and that's, and essentially that's what Islamophobia can be, you know, is a form of bullying. Um, so it was important to me for that to come through with, you know, some of the teachers in the story and then some of the, you know, her peers, or the peers of her little sisters um, in the novel, just that it's this sort of, you know, subtle, pervasive kind of trickle down reality. Yeah, uh, you write in the book, I, I want to just read um, a quote here that I that really spoke to me um, about uh, Amir, who is someone's love interest, and, and, you know, he's quite shy and, and quiet. And you write, it's an unspoken fear all brown skinned boys share, especially Muslims. Most days, it barely registers but it never goes away. The fear that a stranger will assume the worst, that you should never attract attention to yourself, that your survival depends on being as close to invisible as possible. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of kids that are in just in school environments, 
they're already dealing with so many pressures, right? Just to be a teen outside of being Muslim or Brown or whatever it is, you're already dealing with so many life pressures, you know, parents, academics, you know, just to be uh, a kid is to go through epic, you know, changes um, in your development and in becoming, you know, a young adult. And that's what I think a lot of people who haven't experienced othering don't always understand is that this doesn't happen in a vacuum. This is happening along with the other life uh, crap. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's like these kids, you know, that have to deal with any sort of othering for whatever reason. It's also happening in addition to just all the other stuff they've got to deal with that kids have to deal with. It is just kind of, you know, whatever it's, you know, just kind of nonsense drama or real life concerns. I think a lot of times kids that are dealing with this, it's just like this extra thing that is just like, I can't even handle that right now. I've got all this other stuff to deal with. So I wanted to make light of that. And part of my reason also, one thing I enjoyed in writing this story uh, with the character of Amir is also flipping the narrative on Muslim boys, right? Right. Because oftentimes the stereotype is that they're aggressive or, you know, just, just negative. Like, I don't know, they don't have personalities. They don't, you know, so having this character like Amir, who's this, hippie type musician that's so non-confrontational, you know, and, and plays the oud, uh, which is just the coolest instrument. <laughs> Beautiful, right? Yeah, of course. And then, you know, also loves like Bob Marley and is just this wonderful supportive character and is brown, you know, is that for me was really important. Um, that there was no also for Salma, there was no running away from her Islam. There was no uh no one needed to save her. She didn't, you know, I, I wanted to again, like flip the narrative on some of the tropes that we see. Yeah. So it's not like she's running to a white boy or, um, which I hate even saying that term. Cause we, then we also assume that white boys aren't Muslim or that white boys that aren't Muslim aren't supportive. Right. But again, we know that this is a thing that sometimes we see too much in, in novels or in uh, movies or whatever it is. Yeah. But to go back to that passage, it was just really important for me to go down to that, you know, that psychological uh, weight that people carry. Well, I mean, I think you captured it right as as a as a brown boy, you know, myself, you know, I I think you captured it perfectly. Yeah. You uh, Salma's mother is a convert uh, in the book and you write uh, that she claims she always uh, had been one, a Muslim. Uh, her entire life. Um, it just took one step towards Allah for Allah to take two steps towards her. Is that how you felt? Absolutely. Yeah. I um, So I grew up in just a non-practicing Protestant family. Um, so our heritage was Protestant, but I didn't grow up going to church. And I'm still very ignorant when it comes to like Christian practices. If I go to a church for a friend or, you know, do something, I'm like, or I've been invited as a, you know, an author into these spaces. And I'm always like, I don't know what this space, like what this section or what you're doing over here. Like it's a foreign environment. <laughs> you're supposed to sit or you're supposed to stand. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, like, I'm with you. <laughs> when I was exploring Islam and it wasn't something that I, for, like if you asked me when I was 15, do you think like you're going to become Muslim in three years? I'd be like, what are you smoking? <laughs> no, I'm not. Like I had no interest in religion. You know, I kind of was like, oh, you know, it's uh, I'm opposed to organized religion, like that kind of thinking, you know. And my family and I, we went to Istanbul uh, the summer after I graduated from high school. And it was there that we were, you know, you go to the typical uh, tourist spot. So we went to Hagia Sophia and the Blue Mosque. So I was sitting in this beautiful space. I didn't know, you know, I'm in a tank top. I got my hair braided. I'm just like this teen. It's like, what are we doing next on the agenda? 
but I'm listening to it and I was like, wow, that's really beautiful. Like, what is that? And I remember going inside the mosque and I'm just, and I was just captivated by one, this like empty space, right? There's no chairs. And it's just this, like this, this space that just, even when you're just in it, it gets rid of the clutter in you because it has this, you know, the Zen emptiness to it. And so I was surrounded by all this, what I just saw is beauty, right? And again, I wasn't like, oh, what is Islam? I'm going to become Muslim. I was just like, wow, this is really interesting. It was just at, like, put this question mark in me. And then I went away to college at the University of Oregon, which is my, my first year of college. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. I'm, I live in Portland. <laughs> my wife is at the U of O right now. She She's getting her master's degree down oh, there right now. It's, oh, my God. I love Eugene. It's so, like, oh, so, so, yeah. So I... So I ended up transferring to GW, but that year in Oregon was very formative because here I was, I had just gone to Istanbul and was like, whoa, what was that? And I was still processing it. And my dad had handed me this book by Karen Armstrong, who as many of us know, is just this oh. amazing, you know, academic oh, and really just uh, supportive of faiths around the world. Um, whatever it was, I remember reading it. And I think my dad was hoping, he's like, you're going off to college. Maybe you're going to actually read and like have some serious thoughts. Because <laughs> 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 I was not, like as a teenager, I was just like, I was such a late bloomer and just kind of a party pothead. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, thank God you got into college. So here, read a book. I hope you find God. And I think he was hoping that I would um, come back to Christianity. Um, little did he know that because of that trip to Istanbul and you know, that I'm thinking, what is this long, you know? And then I'm reading this book by Karen Armstrong. Um, and I made this beautiful place, you know, Eugene, Oregon. I'm, I'm hiking and growing up, right? Like just inter- having these moments of introspection where I'm like looking at nature that's beautiful and just asking the big questions of life, you know, what is God and who am I? And, you know, and the more that I'm reading about Islam, the more I'm like, wow, this is like, this has all this universal stuff that I've always believed in. Like, even if I didn't grow up, within a church or, or within a, like a, a belief system, I did have a general belief that there was a God and that there was beauty in all peoples and all faiths and all cultures. And so as I was reading these books about Islam, um, like, I was just having these thoughts and I was like, so yeah, it really was very much the same thing. I realized I had always been Muslim. Like these are, were already my beliefs. Now I have a name for it. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it was just, Soma's mom is very much me channeling my own experiences with the song. Um, and probably me as a mom too, like going back to um, my daughter's experience. She was like, yeah, that's, she's like, that's definitely you kind of intense, but really loving. Amazing. What, what is it about Oregon that, that does this to people? I mean, I, I've just, you know, fell in love with this place with nature and everything around here. Oh, it's a beautiful state. I mean, just the Northwest is just magical. You are listening to my conversation with Rabia York-Lombard. Up after the break, we ask her to share a uniquely American Muslim story, and you'll hear details from our very first giveaway. We'll be right back. You're listening to American Muslim Project. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is Rabia York-Lombard, author of No True Believers, a young adult thriller about an American Muslim teenage girl who is forced to confront hatred, secret conspiracies, and Islamophobia during her senior year of high school. Rabia incorporated and highlighted a lot of Arabic and Islamic words throughout the text, and I asked her if that was intentional. You know, it was just really important in keeping, you know, 
an authenticity and a natural sort of organicness to the characters. It's, you know, as Muslims, we use these terms, not even just religiously, but um, vernacularly, um, we use, you know, inshallah, like, you know, when we saw Biden, we use it vernacularly. Or, um, yeah. you know, there's a part where um, someone's talking to Amir's sister, and Amir's sister is recollecting a memory, and she says, uh, she uses the takbir, Allahu Akbar, in this vernacular sense to mean awesome. And, and that adding these layers and these complexities was really important to me. Um, yeah, so there, I mean, there are moments where the Arabic and the Islamic phrases are very much used in a religious sense. But then there's these vernacular moments. And it was really important, especially for me, for the non-Muslim reader, to see the, um, how much that shapes who we are, you know, that we don't like, we aren't like sure. these like rigid religious people. And then, you know, we're also part of then the, you know, the secular life on this other corner, but that these things are really kind of mixed and interwoven and it's not in any weird um, antagonistic way, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it makes complete sense. Do, do you think that we'll get to a point soon where we won't have to italicize those words and define those words in novels? <laughs> think so. Yeah, I think there's um, definitely more support. I mean, the industry and readership has really changed a lot. And just even the last decade that I've been paying attention to these matters. Um, it's so funny, though, I like there's it's kind of a there's always a controversy about italicizing. I'm I maybe I'm just maybe this ages me or this is like the academic mind in me. But I actually like it when foreign words are italicized. I think the actual I think it's actually pretty when it's <laughs> um, just seeing it slanted like that. I'm like, oh, these are special words. Like for me, it indicates something yeah. special because all languages are really cool and I wish I knew more. But at the same time, I definitely understand and support the argument where it's like, oh, but that's separating and it making it look distinct. So, yeah, I think that um, the fact that we're just having this conversation means that things are changing and that you know it's growing. Yeah. So that's that's a good thing. How, how important is it to have these kind of diverse voices out there, especially in, in the media? Oh, it's absolutely central. I mean, it just it just shapes, you know, the popular imagination because images and characters, that's that's what people always remember. Right. When like if you put down a book or you've watched a movie, you know, a couple days or weeks or months later, it's not the specifics that you remember. It's how it made you feel. And so right. if any of those things that made you feel a certain way. Um, those are long-lasting feelings. And if those original feelings are coming from misrepresentation of a people or a religion or whatever it is, those are huge, you know, going back to that, like what these subtle, powerful effects are, you know, in the psyche. In the past, that, that was, you know, generally based in stereotypes and just awful, you know, simplifications, let's say, regarding Muslims. But nowadays, it's, you're getting you're getting far more diverse stories that are beginning to challenge that you know single trope. So it's definitely it's absolutely central. And I can say for myself, you know, someone that uh, converted before I became Muslim, I harbored all the stereotypes, <laughs> not in a hardcore like dogmatic sense, but just in a way that I didn't question it. And so. Um, you're growing up, let's say as a non-Muslim, and you're you're getting these, you know, influences, but you're not thinking about it. And it doesn't mean like, because a lot of people that, that don't understand Muslims or ha harbor negative views, it's not intentional. And I know that when I became Muslim and, and, you know, read books that were written by Muslims, either academic or what have you, that that was then the bridge. You know, what was authentic was the bridge to opening my mind. So I know personally how powerful 
books or even just, you know, experiences with authentic people can be. I wanted to ask about, do you have a uniquely American Muslim experience that you want to share? I don't know if it's unique, but I can tell you that it's always been a source of continued inspiration for me. Shortly after, you know, I became Muslim when I was back in D.C. going to to GW and and 9-11 happened, I was living by myself in an apartment. This was like a week into 9-11, right? The height of intensity. I'm a new sort of hijabi. Like everything, like the faith is new to me and beautiful. And all of a sudden, like, I'm like, whoa, this is what it's like to be othered, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I remember having, coming back from class and it was a really hard day. And I just felt tired and scared. And I'm coming into my apartment building and I come across an elderly, an elderly African-American resident. And, he, and I didn't know who he was and he didn't know who I was he just stopped me. I mean, this guy had wrinkles, like he was a beautiful old man. And he just said, you know what, child, it's going to get better. It's going to be okay. And like the tears just poured from my face. And it was just his sincerity. And the fact that he's took one second of his life to like, say something nice. And the fact that I also knew that like he had seen (laughs) real stuff, you know, like he knew he lived it. Yeah, sure. And I just, you know, ever since that time, and now, like, I never saw him again. You know, it was a big apartment building, so lots of people going in and out. But ever since that time, I kept thinking that as much as Islamophobia has defined certain experiences of mine, being Muslim in America, for a time visibly as a hijabi, and, or, or just, you know, even here, one can experience um, othering. But at the same time, my experiences in moving in and out of these different worlds is also, and I would say more importantly, shaped by the connections that have been made that are beautiful and healthy, the supports that are out there and have come from like the wildest places, places you wouldn't expect. And that for me is something that like, I always have to remember. Cause like, I do want to come back home. I would do want to find a way for us to find that, you know, a living wage that we can come back, you know, health insurance, whatever it is to be able to come back to the United States. Cause that is my home. And for me, as bad as certain things are in the States, uh, as much of work that needs to be done, it's an amazing place yeah. and that, and you know, it's home. And like, and I feel it existentially it's home. Like when I go hiking in the Shenandoahs or I'm just, you know, celebrating Christmas with my family, like it's, it's home and there's a lot of beauty and strength to it. And at the end of the day, I just have to tell myself, like, just believe in that. Yeah. My final question is who out there should we be following or reading or watching? Um, I know you're active on Twitter. Um, are, are there people that you follow that we should all be following? I love your woke auntie. Um, she's so oh, I've never heard of it. She's <laughs> great. She, I think she's a chaplain. She's based in DC. I think she's of a Somali background, just really vulnerable and real and lovely shares a lot about her life and just also pushes a lot of important policies one needs to consider. And then for inspiration, I've been enjoying uh, Riada Akol, I think is how you say her last name. She has a podcast. She's, she's Bosnian called Dignified Resistance that I've been enjoying. Um, my husband, <laughs> sorry for the, <laughs> he has a podcast called Quran for All Seasons that has these little 10 to 15 minute little episodes that focus on the little nuggets of wisdom that come from the Quran and, but from a very non-sectarian universal perspective. Oh, very nice. 
Um, and then if anybody's looking for a good movie to watch, just because they're like, I need to, I need to cry and laugh at the same time. Have you seen the movie Miracle and Cell Number Seven? I haven't. Tell me about it. Oh my god. Okay, so originally it's a South Korean film, but there's a Turkish adaptation that is so beautiful, um, and it's on Netflix, or at least it was recently. Oh my god, it's just it just for me it's a it's one of those movies that shows you the complexity of uh, a Muslim society and those sources of culture and tradition that you know, that, that are, that are beautiful and bring, you know, a softness and just a beauty to the, to the world, all based within a story um, about a young father who is framed for a crime that he didn't commit. <laughs> <laughs> we know that story. <laughs> well, right. And he's mentally handicapped and it's about being reunited um, with his daughter. And it's just gorgeous oh my god in in the midst of like turkish prison culture and these hardcore like criminals that have like good hearts and then there's like a little bit of like you know like sufism in it and it's just it's so cool you'll love it i I know what i'm doing this weekend for sure (laughs) um Rabia York Lombard, thank you for joining American Muslim Project. It's been delightful chatting with you. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Oh, it's been a delight to uh, to get to know you. Thank you for having me on. My conversation with Rabia York Lombard took place in December 2020. We'll have a link to her novel, No True Believers, in the show notes, along with everything else that we talked about. Also, as I mentioned earlier, we are having our first giveaway. Rabia was very generous and gave us eight signed copies of No True Believers that we are going to be raffling off to you, our listeners. Um, They're really beautiful hardcover copies of the book. So how can you win? We're asking you to write a review for us on Apple Podcasts and then send us a screenshot of that review. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. You can send it through the website. Um, And then we'll choose winners randomly on March 15th and mail out the signed copies then. Uh, There are more details on the website. Um, And just a really special thank you to Rabia for being such a huge supporter of the podcast from day one. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafaelion Media. Today's show was produced, researched, and edited by Lindsay Gamble, Marcanato, and me, Asad Butt. Music was created by Simon Hutchinson. You can follow us online at AmericanMuslimProject.com. Music